always think about that. Like, <laughs> what are they going to say in 50 years about this like weird trend or like, oh, you know, like things, you know? They're going to have a museum for it. Um, I don't know. And 50 years is like fine. Oh, it's not. Yeah, now that I think about 50 years back, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. It is not fine. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like things change so much, like so fast. And I feel like, I feel like it's really interesting because yes, like history books have, like we have this idea of like history in our head and it's not that, like it was so long ago, but also it was only 50 years ago. Like my parents are 50. Like, so that was like when they were born. But like, we talk about it, like, it's the same as like 200 years difference yeah. so yeah i think it's really i think in my head like the nazis happened before the dinosaurs at this point like my my history right? is very much messed up um no our i feel like our complete concept of history and time is so skewed because of that you know so then you're thinking like oh like what are they gonna think about podcasts and like in in 10 years they're gonna be like there was this thing called podcasts you know it was like it's the same thing as like there was this thing called myspace like that predates me <laughs> and then and people still talk about it like it's around but then like also nobody has anybody like no one knows what you're talking about because it's also myspace mm. but yeah Greta, please tell us like why did you because you came up with the idea of this podcast which which was which is a great like which was a great idea because I don't think Pasa has done any podcast. What took you four years to come up with this idea to do a podcast? I don't think it necessarily took four years to come up with this this idea, but it definitely took four years of like procrastinating it and you know <laughs> me being in my last two months, fifty two days of my senior year ending, to say, oh yeah, like let's just like do a podcast. Like I'm gonna <laughs> like let's like talk about things. Uh, um, I think you're realizing that you were running out of time to procrastinate. You're like, we need to do it. We need to do, do it in two months. Exactly. What is our aim with this podcast? What do we want to convey? What's the information or the message we want to convey to the listeners? And I guess the reason that we also chose to do a podcast is it's it will be more accessible and it will reach more people. Because uh, we know that even the workshops that we do, or even the community discussions that we do may not necessarily bring uh, everyone, like they may not be the best representation of the campus population, but with our podcast, we are certain because it will be easily accessible. People who are concerned and people who want to learn and listen will get it, will have the chance to listen to it. So because we're reaching such a wider audience, what do we think is the message that we're trying to put out through our series of podcasts? You know, I think, you definitely touched on it. It's accessible. Um, I think more people can listen to it, um, like participate in listening to a podcast, participate in, you know, like the discussions um, by themselves or with their friends. Um, you know, kind of like you were saying, like workshops, like, yeah, they're, they're great, but also, you know, there's a time constraint on them. You know, they only happen for two hours and they only happen with a certain group of people or the people that are available. And not everybody has like the means or the time to not be multitasking like <laughs> Jesus we're college students like if we're not drinking coffee eating breakfast writing an essay and running on a treadmill all at the same time like what are we doing you know so um I think with podcasts it's cool because it gives everybody an opportunity to engage in it engage participate listen uh, learn really learn 
listen to Greta's I find your voice very soothing I'm just gonna put it out there uh, wow biggest compliment ever wow <laughs> no we should probably introduce uh what we're actually I guess talking about or portraying in our podcast today but um yeah we had a conversation with Cuomo earlier um and it was really cool because we got to ask her um questions about like herself her background and you know also some things that are going on on campus that are really important and that I think everybody wants to talk about or listen to you know uh we talked about a little bit about Greek life talked a little bit about you you know some missing pieces at Lafayette but we also talked about like really optimistic things um that Lafayette is doing and you know or can do in the future to make campus just a safer place some hope activism yeah I was just thinking the podcast was like uh, us gossiping and then Professor Cuomo just walked in with her uh, very much with her wisdom and mm-hmm. then we ended up in a very optimistic and educative note. Uh, but if you take out Professor Cuomo from the equation, it could just be us gossiping. Uh, but the entire camp is talking about it, so ne- not necessarily so. We have education in here, okay, people? <laughs> so... And I guess like important things that we necessarily do not or have the time to talk about during our workshops, um, which is instigating change and instigating intention in a wider level. And that's what, and that's what I see the podcast doing. Um, yeah, I agree. I guess without further ado, I'll just let the we'll just you know go right into the conversation with Cuomo. I listen to way too many podcasts. It's disturbing though. <laughs> No, it's good. It's good. We're, we're, you know, we've never done this before, but we've listened to enough podcasts to basically be good at it. <laughs> I think I've seen enough people play soccer to know how to kick a ball. Yep. <laughs> yes, perfect analogy. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's recording. Cool. Um, Hi. So today we are talking to Professor Dina Cuomo, who is an assistant professor of women's and gender and sexuality studies, as well as a part of the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Advisory Committee here at Lafayette. Uh, We as peer educators also know her to be one of our trusted faculty advisors, who has been just great for our organization. So welcome, Professor Cuomo. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here with you. Yeah, um, please tell us and our listeners, how did you end up at Lafayette? And I guess on this podcast today, um, we'd love to hear more of your background story. Yeah, sure. So I've been um, at Lafayette. This is my second year, so um, not terribly long um, in this uh, position uh, within the Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies program. Um, and so prior to uh, coming to Lafayette, I was in a, um, as in a professor at another um, university, uh, and prior to that worked as an advocate um, uh, after I finished up my, my doctorate program. So I do kind of have this um, uh, kind of history of moving between um, both 
scholarly positions and also um, activist or advocate positions. And that um, started many years ago uh, when I was in grad school doing my master's work. I started volunteering at my local community-based domestic violence and rape crisis center. So I worked on the hotline um, for two years, uh, responding to um, crisis calls and uh, providing accompaniment at the hospital during um, sexual assault forensic exams and also advocating on behalf of survivors with um, judges uh, in the middle of the night for emergency protection orders. So I did that work for two years. And um, when I finished up my master's program, I thought I was done with academia forever. And so I started working full-time as a legal advocate uh, for the same organization that I had been volunteering for. Uh, so I did legal advocacy work for three years, um, primarily supporting survivors as they navigated uh, both the criminal and the civil legal systems. I did um, most of that work out of the domestic violence unit of a police department where I worked um, with a domestic violence, a specialized domestic violence detective in supporting survivors. Um, but then decided I was not in fact done with academia. And so I went back for a PhD program where I studied the policing response to uh, domestic violence and was really um, taking a look at the way that the um, criminal legal system, the policing response to domestic violence oftentimes creates um, additional insecurities and fears for survivors. Um, and so that was the focus of my dissertation work. And uh, when I wrapped that up, I knew it could take a little bit of time to secure a um, professor position. The, the academic job market is a very competitive one, a very limited one. And so uh, I started, um, I applied for and, and accepted a position um, at the University of Washington, uh, working full-time as an advocate for student survivors of sexual assault, relationship violence, and stalking. Um, and was really fortunate to, um, you know, have that experience, that experience very much led into my current research, um, project that I'm working on now, which is still based in Seattle, still connected with the communities where I, I had worked as an advocate, uh, where I now study tech abuse, all of the ways that technology is, uh, used by abusers to stalk, harass, monitor, and surveil their partners. Uh, so I very much have this um, kind of history where I move between um, these worlds, um, you know, but always keeping um, in mind kind of ways that I can either as an advocate or as a scholar and a researcher um, support survivors, uh, look to improve the systems that survivors engage with and interact with. Um, and try to provide kind of survivor-centered trauma-informed research as well. Um, that's really attentive to the needs of survivors and working to improve uh, the systems that survivors interact with. Yeah, I guess just to someone like a response, I like I believe our listeners would have, that is a lot. And wow, like I was listening to it. And personally, I found it very interesting because it seems like you are actually putting in genuine efforts to overlap these um, both academic and action-focused uh, study and support for survivors. And I know that you talked about it a lot, but just to sum it up for all of us, uh, would you be able to like, talk about an instance or an experience that sparked your interest in both advocating for survivors and while doing so, while you worked as a volunteer and also as an advocate, what made you feel like you need to get back into the classroom and you need to talk to a bunch of other probably younger people 
So what made you decide that you wanted to intersect these branches of your interest? Yeah, I, I so appreciate that question. Um, so I, um, I knew people um, in my life who had experienced um, different types of interpersonal violence and gender-based violence. And I, um, so, so that was one motivation is to, for me to learn, you know, more about what survivors experiences were like and also how to support survivors better. Right. So that was some of my initial kind of, um, rationale for kind of, um, entering into this work. Uh, when I was doing my master's program, you know, a lot of it was kind of highly theoretical and I wanted to be a little bit more grounded um, in, in the, um, questions that I was interested in and have a little more direct experience, um, with the kind of theoretical, um, you know, uh, interests that I had. And so that was another reason to, to kind of get connected to my local community. A lot of the work that I do, um, is connected to local community. And so, um, it's not the case right now. My research is still based in Seattle, but I hope soon um, I'll move that research here to Easton, to the Lehigh Valley, um, because it is important, I think, um, for, for researchers and scholars to um, do you know, what they can to lend their skills to help solve community problems. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different reasons that kind of led me into advocacy work. What led me back to academia um, was in, in large part kind of missing some of the intellectual stimulation that academia brings. Um, advocacy work is, um, you know, really rewarding work, but it's also really difficult work. And um, it was something that I did full time for three years uh, between my master's and PhD programs and learned a ton. And those experiences directly informed the academic um, research questions that I had, how I structured my research um, design, uh, how I went about, um, you know, the, the projects that I decide that I want to pursue are very much informed by my experiences as an advocate and working directly with survivors. And so I do have this kind of uh, circular kind of, um, you know, maybe experience, but yeah, to your point too, about, you know, wanting to get back into the classroom, um, I do feel really strongly about, you know, bringing um, the, my, my own research into the classroom, um, helping students um, become as passionate as I am about solving some of these, you know, real world problems. Um, and, you know, the, the heart of what feminist research is, is looking to um, address um, and, and lend, um, you know, our expertise to um, solving problems. So this kind of intersection of, of theory and activism is very much um, kind of the center of what um, feminist scholars uh, are, are seeking to do. Um, you know, theorizing what we know are um, everyday problems for, for so many people, um, but also thinking about um, activist approaches and solutions to trying to address those problems. Yeah, that's so interesting that you speak about how your experience has really influenced, you know, both the research and like your academic interests, you know, um, kind of that going back and forth cycling through is it's really interesting, kind of like focusing in on um, that experience and how it's shaped your perception at Lafayette, like how has your advocacy work in the past and the things that you've been involved in shape your perception of Lafayette seeing as we don't have an advocate for survivors as your past experiences that showed and like have you seen any changes in Lafayette's culture since starting two years ago or kind of like at all really? 
Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I'm certainly biased. I feel really strongly about um, the utility and benefits of um, advocacy positions, right? I think they're extremely mm-hmm. important positions, particularly on college campuses. Um, there, we, we know the prevalence of um, interpersonal violence that occurs on college campuses and our processes for accountability, our processes for support, our processes for um, you know, justice um, are really complicated. And so what an advocate does, um, um, you know, among the many things that an advocate does in their one-on-one direct work with survivors is really um, working to help survivors understand what their options are, helping survivors um, with some really detailed and tailored uh, safety plans um, in all aspects of their life, from where they live to how they move about campus to digital uh, safety planning. We know so much of um, the interpersonal violence that it's, it's, is experienced is um, through um, technology and, and, and digital means at this point. Uh, so, you know, really specialized uh, safety plans, uh, academic advocacy, um, you know, helping survivors get connected to resources, whether that's legal resources or medical resources or counseling resources, but then also providing advocacy and accompaniment through any type of reporting process that they might be interested in, whether that's with law enforcement, whether that's seeking a protection order, or whether that's pursuing a Title IX um, complaint. And so these are really complicated, stressful, overwhelming systems that in many ways weren't, you know, particularly set up well um, to be supportive of uh, survivors who have experienced a trauma. And so what advocates do is help survivors understand those systems, help survivors understand the trauma that they've experienced, and then um, work with survivors to identify the best decisions for themselves in those moments, right? Knowing that that can change too. Uh, And so when I came to Lafayette, Um, I wasn't necessarily surprised that we didn't have kind of a dedicated advocate position here. Um, Not every college does. So in in many ways, Lafayette is not unique in that regard. Um, A lot of particularly smaller um, liberal arts colleges do end up partnering with their community-based local domestic violence and rape crisis centers to provide those advocacy services. Um, But I do think because of the student advocacy that's happened here on this campus, um, that the push to really um, demand an advocate for survivors is so, so important. And I'm really happy to see that that is um, moving forward, right? Um, So I think, you know, um, that the college has committed to hiring an advocate and someone who will also be part of um, kind of prevention programming, um, you know, providing a really good, consistent um, mentor for PASA members. You know, this is all um, I I see a, a really kind of positive shift that's happening. Um, and, and very much a result of student advocacy, right? Um, particularly among PASA, but students more broadly in demanding that um, this position be created, um, knowing how important it is to support survivors uh, who have experienced interpersonal violence on campus. Yeah, I mean, PASA started when I was a freshman, so that was 2017. And there, there are so many things that I see um, that have definitely come to light. Um, I think PASA has done a great job of exposing, you know, a lack of prevention and understanding of sexual assault um, at the school and, you know, has 
since been very instrumental in, you know, pushing for students and staff and faculty and administration to be, you know, held accountable for their actions, you know, and then also not only do we have PASANA, but we have One Love, we have other organizations that are, you know, taking a stand and getting involved. Um, and, you know, it's it's been a whole campus effort, which is awesome to see, you know, a lot of work to do, but, you know, from its starting. And so as a student, I think that's one thing that's been really cool. Shout out to all the organization and all the individuals uh, trying to make this place yep. better, not just safer, but better and inclusive and just how it should be for everyone. And now that Greta pointed out that there are so many clubs, so many organizations um, dedicated and working to make this a college a better place for all of us. And because we really want to talk about you with about so many stuff, uh, <laughs> but then we need to, we'll have to narrow down um, the discussion for today. And for our listeners, what we would be focusing on uh, during this podcast would be a bit of conversation, casual conversation, uh, well, not so casual, but conversation about the Greek life and how Greek life plays in the campus community. Um, and before transitioning further into this conversation, I want to make it clear that neither I nor Creta uh, intend this conversation to either support or are against the Greek life movement. We are not supporting or we're not against the abolished Greek life movement, which we should be talking about from now on. And this is just our attempt in trying to understand what are the different factors that play in campus life. And one of the biggest facet of campus life being the Greek life. And yeah, we're not here to make any politically correct or incorrect statements. We're just here to explore and understand and try to understand where we can focus our energy and our efforts at. And I don't know, Professor Cuomo, if you're aware about the Greek life or the abolished Greek life movement that has been a bit of a talk of the town on campus right now. And I am not aware if our listeners are aware of it. So just to make sure that we all understand what we're talking about, I would like to provide like a bit of a blurb, a backstory. Um, so Greek life has been historically an important part of the American education system. From what I understand, initially started at a bunch of people coming together to talk about things that interest them. So the foundations of Greek life and the fact that they use like Greek alphabets and letters, shout out, very creative, um, were I guess more intellectual and like social and intellectual. But over the course of the decades and even centuries, the um, I guess the fundamental meaning of Greek life has come has changed as now it's seen more of a social hub rather than an intellectual ones, although they have people who share similar interests, be it for philanthropic interests or what like other different kinds of factors. But recently, and especially this year, Instagram pages bringing the systemic problems in Greek life uh, to light. Uh, there have been movements which have demanded to abolish Greek life in Lafayette campus. Um, and because we're not taking any extreme stand right now, an important thing that I want to point out is that the Greek Life Committee of Student Government had decided to take a um, Greek Life Climate Survey, as they call it, to see what the student body in general feels about Greek life on campus. And about 60% of the uh, student population responded to this survey. Uh, the survey results were quite divided, 
with uh, people on both extreme ends saying that Greek life positively affected their campus experience and then other equal number of people saying that Greek life actually had a very negative effect. And because the, the opinions were so divided, we, we, like, I think we need more conversation about what is it? What is it that makes us like Greek life? What is that makes us dislike Greek life or even indifferent to it? And we will like for Professor Cuomo to give her opinions uh, as we want to point out, not professional advice or opinions on what she feels Greek life stands in Lafayette campus and what is like its power dynamics? How does it feel in Lafayette campus? And does she have any strong opinion or any opinion in general about it? Is that your question to me? <laughs> yes, because I don't want to just throw you out and be like, do you think we should have Greek life or do you think we should abolish Greek life? Because mm -hmm. those are not the questions that we're um, even supposed to answer. But based on your experiences so far, you're both intellectual, your academic um, findings, your academic, um, I guess, experiences and experience as a advocate. How do you see the Greek life culture? Yes. Okay. So um, I would start out by saying that what's happening at Lafayette is not unique um, and that um, there's a lot of conversation happening nationally right now about um, um, kind of this, uh, what's been phrased as kind of abolish Greek life, uh, the abolish Greek life movement, and really, you know, more broadly kind of taking a critical look at what the role of Greek life is on college campuses in the 21st century. Um, so what I do in my work is study the intersections of interpersonal and institutional violence. And so that's mostly been looking at the policing response to domestic violence. That's been looking at um, the criminal legal system's response to you know, interpersonal violence. That's been looking at higher ed uh, as an institution and the way that it responds to sexual misconduct on campus. Um, my, some of my former experiences were at um, Penn State, which is also the site of um, a very large and public child abuse scandal um, in which uh, one of the former football coaches, Jerry Sandusky, um, had um, a long history of, of sexually abusing young boys. Um, and so I also look at institutional violence from that perspective in thinking about the connections between institutional violence and interpersonal violence that have happened within sports and within higher ed, right? And so when I think about Greek culture um, and Greek life, I think about Greek life also as an institution, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the things that I think about with institutions is, you know, who were they established for? whose needs do they serve, in what way are they inclusive, in what way are they exclusive, and in what way do they cause harm, um, intentionally or not, right? And so I think one of the things that's so interesting about the survey that you mentioned that, that is that there are so many people who identify Greek life as being something very positive in their lives, right? Um, I know I, you know, through Instagram accounts, through the survey, I know some students feel really strongly that Greek life provides, you know, really important mental health support, for example. Um, but the survey also highlights and the Instagram post also highlight that um, uh, Greek life as an institution has also caused enormous harm for people. 
Um, uh, and when we think about kind of the intersections of gender and sexuality and race and religion, there's a long history of exclusion with Greek life um, and not just exclusion, but you know, more um, examples of kind of violent experiences as well. And so when I think about um, kind of this bigger question of, you know, uh, how, to, how to think about Greek life, I think about it in um, connection to Greek life being an institution and the way that we have a lot of conversations about the ways that institutions cause harm to certain people based on their intersecting identities. And that I think is an important conversation to have. I think it's important to recognize that for all of the good that Greek life might do for some people, mm -hmm. does that individual positive experience, uh, what we might call privilege, mm -hmm. um, outweigh the harm that Greek life is doing to other people? Um, and so I think that's a really important question to ask. I think it's a really important conversation to be having. Um, and recognizing that um, not everyone benefits from Greek life, right? And if people are not only, you know, not benefiting, but also being um, directly harmed, what does that say about an institution, particularly an institution on a college campus that, you know, is, is um, communicating that it has values around inclusion, around safety, around diversity, around making sure that all students have an equitable experience, you know, within um, their Lafayette experience. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you bring up that, you know, while some people have a very positive experience with Greek life, you know, do the ends justify these means? I think it's a really interesting point and question to ask, you know, ourselves as Lafayette students, but also as Lafayette community members. Do you think that we could use Greek life? Do you think that Greek life in general, as an already established uh, social system for the students, do you think that it could be better? And if so, how? I'm not, I mean, I'm not an expert on, you know, Greek life. I will speak to kind of the conversations again that we have about institutions more broadly. Um, it's really, really, really hard to change an institution. Uh, when you think about other institutions right now that are being called to action in terms of change, right? We have a movement around defunding or abolishing the police. There's a movement calling into question kind of the general criminalization of people. There's a movement calling an end to mass incarceration. There's a movement really calling attention to inequities built into um, higher ed more broadly, right? It's really difficult to change institutions that were created in large part around um, supporting the livelihoods and the needs of predominantly um, white, heterosexual, cisgender, middle to upper class men. I mean, many of these institutions have kind of a history in that way, right? Um, and so to think about what would have to happen to, um, uh, reform, you know, reform is kind of another, you know, buzzword right now, um, an institution that I think is, is a, it's a, it's an important question to ask. Um, I, I think about kind of, um, when I, when I think about institutions and what, what needs to happen to make them more, 
um, uh, achieve kind of the vision that so many people want them to have. Um, I think about a, a radical reimagining as um, a, a potential way um, to think about what could um, what what would need to happen um, to to really shift um, all of what kind of is the underlining. Uh, structures um, that that keep institutions in place and, and what establish institutions to begin with, right? Um, you know, I think a lot about um, the connections between um, different institutions, particularly those that we might think of as being more masculinist. Uh, so in this way, I think about Greek life, you know, is, in, is not the same as law enforcement, but when I think about kind of what holds the two together as an institution, I think about kind of these fraternal codes of brotherhood. And so when you have institutions that are um, what I would call masculinist, that have kind of masculinist um, structures to them, uh, what I think is interesting to think about is kind of what, what holds them together is oftentimes the very members right? The very members who um, are maybe not encouraged to, or maybe feel um, like they're not capable of, or maybe feel pressured to, or um, maybe actively participate in upholding the very structure because they don't want to see that fall from under, under them. Uh, so there maybe is kind of a, a pressure from within to support one another. There's a pressure to not um, hold each other accountable. Um, there's a pressure to, um, you know, kind of continue to participate in the same, um, what we might call rituals over and over and over again, oftentimes which are rooted in power, oftentimes which are rooted in a hierarchical structure, right? And mm -hmm. so I don't think about, um, you know, Greek life just as the potential it has to harm, you know, other people. I think about Greek life as and what potential it has to even harm its own members, right? Mm -hmm. We know that there's um, harms that occur within individual organizations, right? Through hazing rituals, through uh, different types of um, um, initiation uh, rituals that are oftentimes sexualized violence as well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the things that I think is important for us to be thinking about as we're having conversations about institutions in general, um, institutions that have been long established, uh, that have really worked to maintain and uphold different hierarchies that have been placed in society, is also thinking about, you know, the, the harms that occur um, within those institutions too, to its own members and in which those own members don't always feel like they're able to speak out um, and feel like they have to kind of participate and reproduce in order to maintain the social standing that they get from the institution. Um, so again, I'm not, you know, making a direct comparison between Greek life and law enforcement, but when I think about, you know, the way that they kind of fall underneath the umbrella of what's kind of common among many institutions, I do think there's important conversations that, you know, we could be having, which would kind of shed some light on all institutions in general. Um, and that's why I think about this idea of kind of a radical reimagining rather than, um, you know, even stopping at this idea about um, abolishing or defunding or reforming, 
Um, because radical reimagining then asks us to think about, okay, well, what's next, right? What do we want these institutions to look like uh, if we're not happy with the way that they look like currently? And so, um, you know, a radical reimagination requires a, a conversation that that needs to happen in the first place. Um, and that's certainly what's, you know, um, being raised here on our campus um, and raised by students who, again, are really asking important and meaningful questions about what it means to belong, what it means to be included, what it means to have an equitable experience, what it means to not experience harm uh, in, in everyday life. Yeah, I feel like you did um, justice in pointing out, you know, where we're failing as, you know, a campus to create a safer culture, right? Like, there's a lot of exclusion, there's a lot of power dynamics at play that kind of prevent students from, you know, feeling safe in these institutions, um, whether it be Greek life, whether it be, you know, another organization, but they're definitely prevalent. And, you know, we see people um, being harmed by uh, our institutions which kind of leads me into like my next question, but what should be the values of these institutions? If it's, you know, if the values right now are kind of showing this exclusive um, and maybe patriarchal structure, a bit of oppressive structure, what should these values be changed to? How should our institutions reflect um, better values? I mean, I, I can't answer that specifically. I think that has to come from within. Um, from within, I mean, in this case, we're talking about Greek life, right? So I think that has to come from students. I think students have to um, play a role in shaping kind of what um, you all want uh, the values on um, your campus to be, right? There's oftentimes this like um, kind of interest in having a top-down model around value shaping and for having maybe the college as like, you know, the administrators of a college to kind of um, dictate that or to play a role in that. But I think it's, um, it's so much more powerful when values are shaped by students by, by what actually makes a college what it is, which is the student body. Right. Uh, and so I, um, I can't, I, I don't want to answer the question about what the values of Lafayette or what the values of Greek life or what the values of athletics, right? We haven't talked specifically about athletics, but that's another um, really powerful entity um, yep. on campus. Uh, and so, you know, that has to be shaped by students, I think. Um, and, and here's the thing that people kind of always forget and students always, I think, forget um, students are the most powerful people on this campus, whether you um, uh, know it to be or not. Um, because when students uh, come together collectively and demand change collectively, that's what moves an institution. The, the institution, the Lafayette higher ed is built on students, right? And if students demand change and build a, a community Right, because the the tricky thing about um, students is that you are only here for four years, and so what you um, uh, what what becomes more powerful is when you build a collective community, uh, and that collective community then. Um, new leaders emerge year after year after year, right? So that momentum keeps building. Um, and, and when that happens, that's when you can see real and significant and long-term change, right? 
um, the change that can come from the power of students uh, is what moves and shapes and directs uh, an institution. And so I think students need to determine what the values are that you want to promote, what the values are that you want to ensure um, kind of reflect uh, your, your campus. Um, and that means figuring out how to organize amongst each other. It means figuring out how to collectively raise the voices of those who are most marginalized. I, I do think if there's going to be a centering of values, it, it certainly needs to be around um, the, the, the needs of and the experiences of a uh, student population who is most marginalized. But um, I do think a, a student-led um, direction uh, or a student-led movement around values is um, the, the most powerful thing that could happen. Yeah, that's a really awesome point. I, I also agree with that. You know, I think that bottom-up change is so important, you know, as well as a top-down change, but definitely the students have more power than I think we realize, um, which is, you know, both a good thing, but also maybe something difficult to realize for us as students. You know, we've kind of always been in a dynamic of older people, um, you know, teachers, professors, administrators are the authority. Um, and, you know, we are just students. But I think as we're here in college, it's one of those experiences where we get to acknowledge and grow into um, being leaders and being, you know, the real change makers, the action takers, uh, activists, allies, all of those. Yeah. I was just listening to this and I was like, I am having a, I have a dream moment right now and I might just get up and leave this room and then Greta is going to be angry why are we not doing the podcast. Um, <laughs> but that was, that was very inspiring. And I really like when you talked about the, it's, it's about radical reimagination, like not about demolishing a culture or not about building a new culture from the scratch. It's about constantly questioning and making sure that our culture and our institutions evolve, evolve for the better. And I, as you said, I think value should be very intrinsic uh, and like it should be informed from the external forces. But at the end of the day, we need to decide what our values are. And more than that, we need to act accordingly to it. And I guess over our recent, um, at least in this semester, values has been an important conversation that PASA as an organization has been pushing forward. Have, we have been nudging other organizations to ask themselves what their values are. Mm -hmm. And we've heard great stories and we've heard great things. And we know that everyone on Lafayette, or most people are trying their best um, and inspiring each other all the time. And there are students who realize that, who realize the power they have. And I think another important realization is that our individual power just superimposes into something like radical when we work together as a team. And after all this discussion, I know that we have talked about some difficult and heavy topics today. Um, and we would like to make it sure that people have the necessary support if required after listening to this podcast or like on campus, feel free to reach out to us if we can be of any help. But just trying to um, summarize our discussion and especially the latter half the end point when you talk about the power that young people and students that have in bringing about change and in bringing about, um, in making an environment safer and better in creating the environment that we constantly ask to the people above us. Um, we want to make sure that students 
have some motivation to look at and not just be demotivated and understand that changes are possible. And as motivation yields motivation, we wanted to end this podcast on a very positive note. And that would be, we wanted to ask, what is that which motivates you, Professor Cuomo, to do the, and to keep doing all these amazing things that you do inside Lafayette, outside Lafayette, and just in life in general. So, yeah. <laughs> That's a big question. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm um, a, a generally optimistic person, um, a, a realistic person, a pragmatic person, as, as Tressie McMillan Cottom says, but I'm generally an optimistic person. Uh, and so um, what motivates me is um, certainly being in the classroom every day, even on Zoom, um, and having uh, just really thoughtful, meaningful uh, conversations with students uh, for, for whom I hear so much uh, passion for social justice, uh, so much interest in making the, the world a, a better place. Uh, and so um, being a teacher is certainly something that motivates me um, because I know that um, your generation is uh, such an amazing generation of student leaders, of social justice organizers, of people who want to and demand that the world be a place that is more inclusive and equitable um, and a, a world in which there is less harm happening. Um, and so I'm motivated by students. I'm motivated by the survivors that I have worked with in my past and also continue to work with in a research capacity. Um, and you know, learning from survivors and learning from their experiences is also something that keeps me motivated specifically in the you know, advocacy and scholarly and kind of activist work that I do. Um, and so kind of, you know, uh, one foot in front of the other um, type of um, approach. And um, I, you know, I continue doing the work that I do, whether it's in the classroom or um, whether it's the research that I do, because I do believe that um, there is, you know, hope for a world in which there is uh, less violence, less harm um, and, and more happiness and care um happening awesome <laughs> very yeah that was such an optimistic um perspective and i hope that you know others resonate with it i know i do you know um but i hope that this um conversation and you know your knowledge and wisdom in this field and you know at lafayette carries to others and um helps others as well so thank you oh, and thank you thanks for having me Gosh, we talked for so long. So um, thank you so much again for joining us and, you know, answering our questions. And yeah, absolutely. No problem. Let me know if you need anything else from me. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Thanks. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. We appreciated Professor Cuomo's expertise and opinions so much today. I think some of the main takeaways from our conversation, though, um, was this idea of radical reimagination and student-led activism. You know, Lafayette is a small school, which I'm sure we've all come to both appreciate and despise at one point or another. 
Um, on the one hand, Lafayette lacks a campus advocate position and, you know, our demand for counseling, health and supportive resources exceeds the available supply as we are small and, you know, only have employed so many faculty and staff in these positions. On the other hand, you know, students are able to be so involved and connected to the change on our campus. In Cuomo's two years and in my four years of being here as a student, so much has already changed. And there is still a lot of work to be done, yes, and students will likely bear the weight of that load. Yeah, that's that's the great that's a great point, Greta. And I guess like you pointed out, with this realization. Uh, that we had over the course of the podcast of the power and potential we hold as students in some ways because of the close-knit campus community we share. Um, it is our responsibility to believe that we are the change makers on campus and with this belief comes a responsibility to be vigilant of the changes we ask and we made. In the podcast we talked about the Greek life climate on campus um, which we neither supported nor opposed Uh, But we ended up discussing an important idea, which was about creating a space of inclusion, support and care within our institutions. And one of those institutions being the Greek life Uh, institutions at the end of the day are just resonance of our individual values. And perhaps it's high time now that we ask ourselves if our personal values are oppressive, exclusive, misogynistic and belittling. And if not, uh, why do our institutions portray these ideas and behaviors? Yes, Swati, I love this point. I feel like our actions and behaviors are currently not aligned with our ideal values. It's all about reality and practice over intent, right? You know, I think no one intentionally aims to harm somebody, but if our actions and institutions are harming people and we do nothing to change this, it is basically just as harmful and the same um, as, as trying to hurt marginalized communities, um, because these communities continue to be hurt. These individuals continue to be, um, hurt by the system. Uh, we want to thank you all for today for listening in and please stay tuned for another upcoming discussion with more faculty and administration. Bye guys. Bye for now.